So I went on Alice's podcast this week. Poetry says it was a good conversation. I think I enjoyed it. I don't think I said anything too stupid, or at least nothing, nothing uncharacteristically stupid. Let's put it that way. Uh, but she did give me a lot of grief. She gave me a lot of grief for being so down on poetry and poets. And so I thought I would start this week by saying something nice about poetry. And and even just so you don't think I'm copping out something nice about poetry today, I'll even piss off Jonathan Farmer and say something nice about contemporary poets today at large as a group, as a, as a generalization. So the 2021 chess world championship is over. Bear with me. I am getting back to, to poets. It's a little bit of a long walk, but it, it'll be worth it. I promise. As I said, the world championship match is over. Magnus Carlsen has won his fifth title. He's still aiming to break Kasparov's record of six world championship titles. It was a, the match was a little bit of a disappointment to some fans. It was, it was meant to be the best of 14 games and Carlson won it in 11 because after the record-breaking sixth game, which lasted seven hours and 47 minutes and ended uh, only after um, an extremely close contest with a Carlson victory, uh, Nepomnichi had what has sort of widely been recognized as a, as a kind of a breakdown. But I just wanted to start by, by mentioning a, a very small story, one that, that I think is very easy to overlook at this point. On move 19 of the ninth game, Magnus Carlsen violated a small but important rule of chess. It's actually considered uh, FIDE, the World Chess Federation, considers it a law of chess. He broke the law. He broke chess law. Now, the law he broke is what's sometimes called the touch-move rule. That is, um, you're only allowed to touch a chess man on your turn. Pawns, by the way, are not chess pieces. They're not considered pieces in chess. They're pawns and pieces. And so the entire set is called chess men, which might seem a little bit retrograde, but then chess is already uh, the most feminist board game in existence by virtue of the queen. Uh, So at any rate, the the touch move rule states that you're not allowed to touch a chess man uh, except on your turn. And if you touch a chess man on your turn, then you must move that chess man. As long as it's legal to do so, having touched a chess man means you must move it. Well, Carlson touched a knight, which is a piece, by the way. It's a minor piece. He touched a knight, he, he, he turned it slightly, and then he quickly raised his hand in a gesture that, that pretty much everyone watching recognized to be uh, a gesture of apology for adjusting a piece illegally. Because the touch-move rule has an exception. The exception is that you can adjust a piece or a pawn without moving it if you first say literally the magic word. 
the magic word is jadu, or uh, in English, I adjust. You have to announce your intention to adjust the piece rather than to move it. However, he did not adjust. He did not say jadu before adjusting it, uh, but it was finally decided by the uh, FIDE officials on hand, as well as uh, generally all the commentators, that, that it was obvious that he was merely adjusting the knight and not moving it. Robert Hess, an American Grandmaster, even went so far as to calculate the possible moves he could have made with a knight, with that knight and on that move, and he, he determined that there was really no plausible move he could have been considering. Really, the only explanation for him touching that piece, in this case, uh, was that it was an adjustment. Now, the the story quickly turned when Nepomnichi made a, a game uh, tilting blunder later on, and and the, the the game came to a relatively quick end. But this this minor scandal, this minor story about Carlson touching the knight, made me think about this funny rule, the touch move rule, and and even more so the 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 funnier exception to the rule the Jadoub exception, because FIDE officials were charged in that instance with determining what Carlson's intention had been. They had to look at the video, consider the circumstances. Now, the circumstances included you know, his being alone in the room, or seemingly alone, because they, the, the competition took place in a glass box, and Nepomnichi was in his private rest area at the time. And so, as uh, Fabian Carana said, you know, when nobody's in the room, you don't bother to say Jadoub because there's nobody to say it to. It was an absent-minded gesture on Carlson's part. But the fact that this Jadoub rule exists, the fact that the touch-move rule has this particular exception for adjustments of pieces, means that FIDE officials, and in other cases, you know, other officials, other uh, uh, contestants or adjudicators, have to decide what a player's intention is when he adjusts a piece. And this seems like a crazy determination for an official to have to make. The much simpler and more straightforward solution would seem to be to eliminate the Jadoub exception. To say, under no circumstances are you allowed to touch a piece without moving it. Unless that move turns out to be illegal. I have a suspicion as to why it, it, it hasn't been eliminated. I, I even have, I mean, really, I have a suspicion as to why it exists in the first place. Because these adjustments, these little fiddlings with the pieces, usually it's to, it's to move the piece more perfectly into the center of the square with, uh, with the piece or the pawn. But again, it, this is not, this is not a, a gameplay decision. Moving, adjusting the pieces rather, twiddling, tweaking the pieces, that's not something that affects the game. It's not necessary activity and therefore it would be far simpler to, to eliminate the option. There's no adjusting. There's no adjusting, say. But the problem, I suspect, is that while there, there's no great advantage to, to having a, a strong urge to straighten or tidy things, that tendency, that urge, I suspect, strongly correlates to uh, the kinds of abilities or proclivities that make one a really good chess player. I am not a good chess player. I, I have no natural aptitude for chess, uh, nor do I have any experience with chess. But I do have what my wife would very generously call an obsessive compulsive personality. It's not a disorder. It's not a disorder unless it fucks up your life. But 
I, I do have a tendency to, to want to straighten things, to, to double check locks, to redo, overdo certain trivial physical actions. And yes, when I am playing uh, chess on a physical chessboard, I, I am constantly tempted to fiddle with, adjust, straighten, jadoub the pieces. And I think if you were to eliminate the jadoub rule, you would cause a, an unnecessary hardship to a large number of the players. Not that all chess players feel this urge and not that only chess players feel this urge. Obviously, people like me who are not chess players might also feel this urge. But among chess players, this is an urge that is fairly peculiar to them, right? It, it occurs, my guess is it occurs much more often in chess players than elsewhere. And it occurs fairly universally among chess players. That is, I would suspect that the great majority of chess players have some degree of this natural itch to straighten, to adjust. Because again, there's no good, obvious, logical reason for the Jadub exception to exist. The reason it exists is that it makes life easier for chess players specifically. And this kind of allowance, I, I think, is not unique to chess. When I used to go to my dad's office, he, he's an architect, as a kid, I would notice uh, that, that the, the desk areas of all of the designers were constantly cluttered. I mean, sometimes to, a, to an almost hazardous degree, just cluttered with toys, gadgets, Rubik's Cubes, models, gimmicks, sculptures, games, doodads. They were, they were all of them just stacked up with little tchotchkes and tchotchkes of a particular kind. They tended to have a lot of sharp angles. They tended to be uh, striking in design, visually striking. They often, sometimes they were buildings or they were like buildings. They were sort of block-like. Sometimes they weren't, but it was, you know, in a professional office, especially one where you might want to walk by without risk of knocking over a domino-like series of uh, Japanese action figures, you might say, well, it would be simpler. It would be more reasonable just to say, hey guys, no toys in the office. Don't stack up elaborate rows of uh, dumb plastic uh, models and toys and uh, gadgets and games, right? Let's, let's not have that. But these were architects, right? Other people also like this kind of junk, right? And not all architects like this kind of junk, but largely architects like this kind of junk. And uh, the great majority of them do, if not all of them. And so having some little stuff to fiddle with, to look at, to think about, having this sort of design stimulation material, it's almost like a, the, the black and white uh, geometrical uh, mobile you hang above an infant's <laughs> crib, Having this kind of stuff around the office made life easier for the architects. It was soothing to them. They liked it. It helped them. And because it was, after all, an architecture firm, it made more sense to allow that stuff than to try to restrict it, even if it was, in sort of pure logical terms, a little bit, uh, a little bit excessive. I think, I think probably the clearest and maybe most troubling example of this sort of allowance uh, to, occurs among athletes, there are very few jobs where you could 
literally get into a bloody fist fight with someone from another firm in the middle of a business meeting and then uh, come back to work after a, a week of suspension or after paying a little fine, uh, turn up at the next meeting with the same guy there, right? There are, of course, much darker and more upsetting examples of athlete violence. Michael Vick tortured and killed dogs for years and went to prison for this and was ultimately allowed to uh, come back and play more football. Now, I'm not saying this ought to be the case. I'm not saying this is good, but I am saying that there is a specific reason for this. Now, reason one is that is that athletes of this level are extremely valuable assets to the owners of the teams, and therefore it's worth it to them to take on the extra risk. But I'll say, in addition to that, the specific reason that this is the allowance they're given, that there's a specific allowance for spontaneous violence, for impulsivity of this kind, especially among contact sports, is that the, the kind of person who is going to be really good at football, really good at hockey, really good at rugby, really good at uh, soccer. Think about Zinedine Zidane, right? Getting a red card at the end of his, his final World Cup game. The kind of athlete who's going to be really good at these sports is also, by and large, not in all cases and not exclusively, but is by and large going to be somebody who also has a higher likelihood of of spontaneously responding to an urge to commit violence. If you banned all the guys who occasionally got into fistfights, then uh, professional athletes would be severely handicapped because that's the same group of people from whom you're selecting athletes. Obviously, there are assholes who get into fistfights and are also bad at football, right? But as I've been saying, there is a concentration. It is largely peculiar to and largely universal among athletes especially athletes in certain sports. Now, I go into all of this because I, of course, got to thinking about poets. What is it that poets are particularly, peculiarly bad about? <laughs> what vice peculiar enough and universal enough among poets is also often accompanied by a virtue that allows us to do what we do. I won't even say us, that allows them to do what they do. Good poets. And I think, you know, my first thought was Yeats. Yeats said, to write poems is uh, to be thought an idler by the noisy set. He says this in Adam's Curse. But of course, what he's talking about is really not idleness per se, right? It's it's more uh, a, a, a perceived idleness that is a response to invisible labor. He says, a line may take us, hours may be, but if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. He said the point is that the poets do work very hard, but it doesn't seem like they're working hard. And so people perceive that they are idle, 
that that is their characteristic vice. You're uh, loitering palely on a hillside. And, and that is true, right? There's, it, it is, uh, poets are certainly perceived to be idle. Uh, what's also true is that unlike athletes, unlike architects, unlike chess players, uh, poets don't actually provide a service that most people care enough about to bother to make any allowance at all for any kind of excessive behavior on poets' parts. But, but I, you know, sticking with this, this notion of idleness for a minute, I, I, think of, I think of Whitman saying, I loaf and invite my soul, and even Eliot referring to the poet's necessary laziness. That's his term, the poet's necessary laziness. And just looking at my own experience, I think there's something to that. Right, Sam Riviere, you know, he and I disagreed about a lot, but he said something during our conversation about how he didn't consider poetry a craft. We we disagreed about that part that the, that I think there there is some craft component, but he, he was getting at something I think specific. He was saying that, that that what it is that really makes a poem a poem, setting aside whether it's you know you apply some some sort of repeatable craft to it, say meter, rhyme. What makes a poem a poem is a little bit of a question mark. And having made one once doesn't in any way guarantee that you can make one again. So there is something mysterious about poetry. And this, in concert with this question of laziness, got me thinking that there may be a characteristic virtue that poets share. Again, peculiarly enough and universally enough. Because I think this virtue might, it might transcend all of the disputes over schools and uh, styles and form. I, I think that whether you write uh, first thought, best thought, free verse, or uh, dry, prosaic, conceptual poetry, or uh, strictly traditional metrical poetry, or uh, spoken word, or insta-poetry, or whatever you want to call it. I think that there may be one virtue that, that, again, may not appear in all good poets, but I think appears maybe in most good poets, or maybe the great majority of good poets. And, and to a greater degree than it appears elsewhere. I think it is a virtue that accompanies laziness. Because I do think that maybe poets have a tendency to be a little bit lazy in certain respects. Because the flip side of laziness is patience. And when you can't labor over a line to get it just right, when you can't force yourself to come up with an idea, when you can't simply look around the room and pluck something and start writing, you have to wait. Now, anybody with any experience writing in any genre knows that you can't merely wait. You can't merely wait around for inspiration. But it may be necessary to wait sometimes. And with poetry, I think partly because it is a little bit flimsier, a little bit flightier, a little bit harder to pin down, 
than other genres, you might have to wait even more than you do when you're writing a novel or a short story or a play or an essay. And I think that's maybe what Whitman and Eliot are getting at. And what Yeats doesn't give quite enough credence to is that, yeah, there is something lazy about doing nothing with your time. But, but it may be that you're, you're doing nothing yet because you are waiting for whatever it is that might or might not come. But if it does, you'll be ready. And so having settled on patience as our characteristic virtue, I thought, well, now what we need is a slogan to accompany this patience, right? Jadoub is the slogan, is the, is the, uh, the password by which chess players excuse their excessive tendencies. Where a normal person might be able to look at a chessboard and not fiddle with the pieces, a chess player is, I would say, a lot more likely to feel an urge to fiddle with the pieces, to straighten a knight, for example. And so Jadoub is the accepted password by which he excuses himself to others. And I think poets need one of these. We need one of these for our laziness, which I will, I will contend is, is the flip side of, of what I genuinely, I'm, I'm being a little bit wry, but I, but I actually do sort of think this is true. I think there is something to patience as the poetic virtue. And so I, I realized thinking about uh, Christmas, thinking about going home, spending a lot of time around family, having to give an account of myself <laughs> to family, which is always the worst part of the holidays, at least for me. I, I thought, you know, I've actually already stumbled on what I think is maybe a pretty good password or slogan, an excuse to give the outside world for the excesses of the poetic personality. It is the answer that I tend to give to uh, questions that family members ask, questions that strangers ask, questions that neighbors or uh, uh, you know, uh, old, old non-poetry friends will ask me on occasion. When are you going to let me read something? What's happening with that book? How's that whole poetry thing working out for you? My answer to those questions, simple and inarguable, is we'll see. When are you going to let me read something? We'll see. What's happening with that book? We'll see. How's that whole poetry thing working out for you? We'll see. And the best part of this answer, this excuse, which you should feel free to use, by the way, if you haven't already, <laughs> with your own relatives. The best part of saying we'll see is that it's true. We will see, whether we like it or not. Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, too, especially if you have had a chance to recommend the show to somebody you think might enjoy it as well. 
it's uh it makes it makes a difference gets the word around again only to the cool people we're only telling cool people about this show but if you haven't uh or if you feel especially inspired do say something to somebody you know just let them in on this ridiculous podcast that you apparently listen to i appreciate it so i got a little bit of a um miscellany today i got a lot of good juicy contentious <laughs> email after uh the last few episodes i actually have th- sort of three big disagreements on three different episodes i may not be able to get to all of them quickly though i should probably say uh the f- <laughs> the the first and loudest uh quibble i i heard was from my wife who chastise me for not sufficiently plugging my own gig. So I guess I'll just say one more time that I am going to be teaching a fiction writing class. If you have any interest, if we put it this way, if you live in the research triangle, uh, look up the Redbud writing project. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll be teaching a class there. Uh, or if you know, if you if you feel really moved, you could write them and say, uh, where are your fucking poetry classes? I'd like to take a poetry class from this asshole. Uh, in, in any event, if you don't know what the research triangle is, then you don't live in the research triangle. So let's not worry about it. I guess next I want to address, I got a slew of objections from Shane to my pudding day episode. Again, I, uh, I got, uh, <laughs> Had a little bit of a back and forth about that episode with Alice on her podcast. Poetry says that episode is live now, and I'll put an episode uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes. I have not listened to it yet. I am a little terrified to listen to it because it will be the first podcast on which I appear, uh, the audio of which I didn't edit. So you may hear even more ums and inane asides and inexplicable pauses than usual. Anyway, I got a note from Shane. Uh, one of my part of my case against the health of poetry in the Pudding Day episode was the observation that there are no poetry guilty pleasures. There are no poems you go to to read because uh, you, you you just can't help yourself. There's no poetry you read and. Uh, lie about having read because you don't want people to know. I mean, I had a neighbor who 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 said something like this about reading Jonathan Franzen. That she 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 was enjoying his book. She just didn't want to say anything to anyone about enjoying his book. She didn't want to to let on that she enjoyed his book. Uh, I I I think that those, I think examples of poems or poets of that kind are pretty rare. You know, I, I just I think there aren't that many of them. And a really healthy life, uh, sorry, a really healthy life form, a really healthy art form, I, I, will, I will propose ought to have a good hearty supply of guilty pleasures. Now, Shane pointed out just, <laughs> just witheringly that uh, I had missed a very obvious example. Come on, man, he says, Frederick Seidel is defi- is definitively 
a poetry guilty pleasure. That's his whole thing. And uh, Shane's completely right. I, I had totally forgotten about Frederick Seidel. He is a poetry guilty pleasure. If you don't know who Seidel is or have any familiarity with his poetry, I will just read you this poem real quick. I, I'm going to I'm gonna kind of whiz through it <laughs> because I think it's fairly self-explanatory. He uh, likes to play with sound and language and he hates apologizing for the extravagant wealth into which he was born and which he never tires of enjoying. So this is Victory Parade. This appeared in the September 2012 issue of Poetry Magazine. I, I would apologize in advance for this entire poem, but I think Shane's, uh, <laughs> Shane's uh, note already made clear exactly what it is that you should expect. Victory Parade. My girlfriend is a miracle. She's so young, but she's so beautiful. So is her new bikini trim, a waxed to neatness center strip of quim. Now there's a word you haven't heard for a while. It makes me smile. It makes me think of James Joyce. You hear his oirish voice. That is O-I-R-I-S-H. His oirish voice. It's spring on Broadway and in the center strip mall, the trees are all excited to be beginning. My girlfriend's amazing wax keeps grinning. Sorry, my girl, my girlfriend's amazing waxing keeps grinning. It's enough to distract from the other drastic act of display today. Osama bin Laden is dead. One shot to the chest and one to the head. SEAL Team 6 far away from my bed above Broadway in Abbottabad, Pakistan instead. Bullets beyond compare flew over there, flew through the air to above and below the beard of hair. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's almost Dr. Seuss. Flew, bullets beyond compare flew over there, flew through the air to above and below the beard of hair, a type of ordnance that exploded inside the guy and instantly downloaded the brains out the nose. Our Vietnam is now radical Islam. I tip my hat and heart to the lovely tiny lampshade above her parade. Whew, man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you are you are so right, Shane. Frederick Seidel is is nothing uh, if not a guilty pleasure. Uh, Shane had a few other arguments. A, a lot of it, I think, came down to this question of sort of what qualifies as health for an art form. He uh, pointed out that some of my specific uh, uh, claims about uh, the the health of an art form, some of, some of the metrics I had chosen. For example, a, a red-hot, can't-wait-to-get-your-hands-on-it source of poetry that seems not to be especially on hand today. You know, he, he, he argued that there are, there, there, there are things he's dying for. There are books he's dying for. He's dying for the new James... Sorry, he's not dying for the new Jay Wright. Uh, Shane and Cameron, by the way, have in common a love of Jay Wright. I'm still getting there. I, I, have, a, I have a problem... Not with Jay Wright, but with, with some of his poetry and with, with some kinds of poems more generally. I got a, a really good long email from Cameron as well that, that's so dense I may not get to it at all today. But it, it's it's on this sort of topic that there is a there is a thing I think that really smart readers, including Shane and Cameron, tend to do when they read that I'm not sure I do or I may not do it enough or at least not as much. As, uh, as some of you 
other folks. Another of Shane's objections, though, was that you know there has not been a a time here. He says, "How often have large crowds of people?" I, I don't think you mentioned large crowds, but if not large crowds, then how many people are necessary? Is one enough dying for the new Jay right? How many times have large crowds of people ever been dying for the latest book of straight up page poetry? If you say that used to happen frequently, I'm gonna need a time period in which it did. Uh, totally fair, totally fair. And, and you know, I think that there, I think you could probably make an argument for there having been some periods in which poetry was a little more popular, page poetry, as we say, could, is a little more popular, was a little more popular than it is today. I thought of T.S. Eliot, who read to sports stadiums packed with, <laughs> packed with uh, listeners. And I thought of Lord Byron, who became famous overnight when he published uh, Child Herald. So I, I think there are, <clears throat> I think maybe, probably there, there were some periods when, when page poetry was healthier than it is today, but let's say for a moment that there, that there weren't. I think it's, again, it's a totally fair challenge. Even assuming that there have not been periods when page poetry was more popular than it is today, my conclusion is not that, oh, I guess page poetry is healthy and popular enough today. My conclusion is, well, then maybe page poetry was never in good health. Maybe it was always a cultural remora, a hanger-on. And live performed poetry, dramatic poetry, epic poetry, recitations, lyric poetry played with music, you know, snappy uh, epigrams, you know, dashed off in bars. Maybe maybe these sorts of poems were always the most popular kinds of poems. And, and strict page poetry, that is poetry that is not fundamentally, robustly reliant on another major artistic element, such as vocal performance, uh, music, presence, pers persona, personality, um, uh, Twitter feed, Instagram feed, really more, more accurately. Maybe page poetry was never in good health. I think what I look for, and I, I, I'm going to be talking about this article that uh, Austin Allen, friend of the show, former guest on the show, Austin Allen has a long article uh, that in the, the LA Review of Books, that I, I'm going to be getting into, I mean, what promises to be a pretty fucking heated <laughs> conversation with Jonathan, Jonathan Farmer and Eric Smith later on this week, I, I'm, I'm hoping. We're going to be talking about that. And uh, there's a lot to dig into there. One little note that I, I do want to uh, take, that he, he, he makes the observation, Austin makes the observation, Oh, here's here's a here's a snatch from Austin's essay. He's talking about uh, a meter and free verse, which I'm not going to get into today. But just just addressing the question of the the popularity and the relationship to the public of contemporary page poetry, he says the poetry profession. It's in quotation marks. The poetry profession is an idiosyncratic system of patronage and licensure in which. Merchants' connections matter as much as the quality of their products, and their sales hardly matter at all. Even acclaimed collections rarely become bestsellers. 
Under such systems, a favored guild may dominate, while others struggle to gain credentials, attract patrons, and access venues through which they might shift prevailing taste. So when poems succeed or fail, when page poems succeed or fail, especially when page poets succeed or fail, it, it almost never has anything to do with the enjoyment of an audience. It has to do with, as he says, an idiosyncratic system of patronage and licensure. It has to do with grant applications. It has to do with teaching gigs. It has to do with reading circuits. It has to do with uh, the mastheads of literary magazines. I guess I would just say that if an art form is in really good health, then some of what influences how it changes, how it develops, what choices the its, its practitioners make, there should be some relationship, some sort of feedback, not a perfect relationship, not subservience or, or absolute obedience, but some kind of relationship to the actual public enjoyment and response of non-initiate readers. And, and I just don't think that's really the case for poetry. I think as plenty of other people have pointed out, when poetry comes up with something new, it almost never has anything to do with what people experience when they read it. It is based in theory or whim or uh, the clickishness. It's not really based on what people liked or didn't like before or what kinds of new things they're learning to like. A really healthy art form is in some sort of conversation with the public. Page poetry, I, 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 it's hard for me to see how it really is, but uh, a, a really, you know, really, really strong objections as always from Shane, who is, as I have, as I have mentioned before, a hell of a lot uh, smarter and better read than I am. He makes, I think, a, a, a also a pretty compelling claim, which is that for him, he says, to me, good health for an art form means that great artists are living and producing. He names Ishian Hutchinson, Lynn Higinian, Jory Graham, Martin Corliss Smith, and he says there are plenty of others. I, I think that that's, that's a good argument. And, and yes, having great poets making great poetry is, is about all one can ask for. But whether I'm making the right, I think, let me put it this way. Maybe I'm wrong to say that poetry is in poor health if there are great poets making great poems. M maybe so. Maybe, maybe that's the wrong definition, the wrong criterion. But whatever the definition, whatever the terminology, there is something not quite right <laughs> with poetry. What is what is the um, what's the line from Hecht's a letter? But I would have you know that all is not well with a man dead set to ignore the endless repetitions of his own murmurous blood. That's Hecht's a letter. That's I guess what comes to mind because maybe maybe great poets making great poems is enough to say that poetry is in good health, but. Something is not quite right. All is not well. All is not right. If poetry has so little, I mean, it has 
maybe no real responsive relationship to pub the public experience of the art form. If all of the calls are coming from inside the house, then maybe health is the wrong term, but something isn't quite right. Something isn't quite as it should be. Maybe it's never been, but I'm not persuaded. I'm, I'm, uh, you, you can be, uh, however skeptical you are, Shane, you won't be as, yeah, your skepticism is no match for my pessimism. <laughs> Maybe it has never been in good health. Maybe things have never been right, but I'm still not convinced that they're quite right now. So thank you. As always, I'm always thrilled to hear from Shane. I'm always thrilled to hear from, uh, any of you smart listeners who have, meaningful objections to to things that I say on this very silly podcast. I, I will, because I think I can maybe address it in a slightly shorter stretch than I could Cameron's, I want to talk too about a, a note I got from BH, who wrote the, the uh, fan favorite letter about Red Scare. <laughs> People seemed really to enjoy, as, as did I. He... Uh, he was not a fan of the my, of, uh, of my conversation with Brian about bad art friend. He said, um, I don't know about these bad art friend takes, man. You can pretty much boil it down to Sonia Larson wrote a story that basically said, don't donate your kidney because white ladies be cringe. And her friend who donated a kidney said, hey, don't say that. People might die because they can't get a kidney over others' fear of being cringe. I don't care if anyone took parts of another person's life for a story. On the other hand, I also don't care if the person who got stolen from takes offense. The NYT article tries to do a both sides thing, but to do that, it has to leave out a lot of facts from Dawn's side. It's all pretty dumb, but Larson should apologize and take the story down or whatever, not because of plagiarism, but because it's a net negative for the real world. I, one of the reasons I really like hearing disagreements from listeners is that it often clarifies for me what people think I've said. I, I, was, I was somewhat surprised by by much of this note because I didn't think I had said anything exactly contradicted by some of these claims. And I had a little exchange with BH before tonight. And you know, so I'm basically in agreement on most of these points. The, the, the New York Times article was lopsided. By, in, in attempting to be even-handed, it was lopsided because the situation isn't even-handed. Right? I don't really want to get a drink with Don Dorland or Sonia Larson, but boy, if I had to, if I had to pick somebody to bring home for Thanksgiving, it would be Don Dorland in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. Sonia Larson seems like a a miserable ladder climbing harpy. Uh, so no, of, of of course, yeah, I think I think I think he's quite right about that. And yeah, I think uh, Sonia Larson was was nasty and mean to Don Dorland, and if she were a nicer person, she would probably apologize. And that would be uh, as she as she ought to. Uh, but the, taking down the story, unpublishing it, retracting it, you know, I, I think setting aside the question of like whether that would even be feasible at this point, which I think it, it would not. You know, the 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 information of this kind, at least, wants to be free for good or ill. I I don't. I don't think I can, I don't think I at all agree. I mean, not only is Sonia Larson not wrong to steal the note, and I think that's, 
I mean, that's the fairest of fair game. Yeah, t- take if you take a chunk of someone's Facebook post and you turn it and you, you you write a story around it, especially if that is you know maybe a significant part of the story, but not really fundamentally the heart of the story. Uh, I, yeah, I, I I don't. I mean, maybe even if it is, I I can't. I can't uh, see my way to condemning that. And so, you know, Sonia Larson had plenty to apologize for, but not that. And Don Dorland's free to object to it, but yeah, no, there's no, there's no, um, there's no wrong to write there unless Don Dorland writes, wants to write her own uh, 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 angry, vindictive, unfair <laughs> version of the events, which got speed. I, I kind of, I kind of hope she does. But, you know, I, I, I had a little more of an exchange, as I said, and, and BH wrote back again with sort of a follow-up that I, I think made me want to, it gave me pause. I didn't write back right away, partly because I, I knew I wanted to discuss it on the podcast and partly because I had to think about it. It was a smart, it was a smart response and I had to give it some thought. So, so here's uh, at least, for, here, here, here's part of BH's response. Uh, Yeah, I'm not advocating for any legislation restricting Larson's First Amendment rights here. I just think she's wrong, and apologizing for being wrong is a good thing for people to do. Trying to fix what you did wrong is generally a good thing, too. I'm not demanding it. I'm not going to dox her or anything over it. I'd say (laughs) that horse is kind of out of the barn on that one. She's, She's pretty thoroughly doxed at this point. It's just my hot take. I'm obviously not sure what she could do to take it out of the public eye, hence the whatever. I'm pretty sure Don Dorland thinks it might make people not donate their kidneys for fear of being cringe. He's got that in quotation marks. And that's more the point I was trying to make. I stand by the story being a net negative influence on the world. Stories influence people to do things, dude. (laughs) I love that sentence. Stories influence people to do things, dude. You're an atheist. How much negative influence has the Bible had on human action? If those are just stories, they are art. Sure, you can't really objectively measure the influence of any piece of art on an action, but to say it never influences people to do things seems pretty wacky to me too. So uh, this is responding to to something I I said uh, along the lines of, uh, I don't think art makes people do bad things. And... Uh, I, so as I said, I had to give some thought because this was a really smart response. And, and I guess I kind of broke down this problem into three questions as far as I understand it. So question number one is, was it wrong to steal this excerpt from Don Dorland's Facebook post and put it in a apparently shitty short story and publish it? No. No, I don't think that that uh, playing fast and loose with your friends' lives for the purpose of writing fiction is wrong. Uh, yeah, I don't think that part was wrong. I think she was a shitty friend and she should apologize for that. But no. Stealing to make art is not wrong. The second question is... All right, so does art make people do bad things? This is kind of the big question. Now, my inclination is to say, 
Because, you know, th this is the suggestion that we're, or rather, maybe, maybe in this case, it's not even art making someone do a bad thing. It's art making someone not do a good thing, right? The idea being that somebody might read this story about a smug, uh, white savior lady donating a kidney to a half Asian woman and feeling and lording it over her in some sense. So, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the theory, and this is, I think, Dorland's theory, is that somebody might read this and that, you know, a person who might otherwise have altruistically donated a kidney might read this story and say, oh, I don't want to be a smug white savior. I'll just not donate my kidney. I, I think that if you are that influenced by a short story, if you make a major life decision based on a funny feeling you get when you read a short story, then, you know, probably you either weren't really going to donate your kidney <laughs> or uh, you're, you're really mentally ill, in which case maybe you shouldn't be donating a kidney. You know, and just, just to hammer home the point uh, when it comes to active bad things, like, you know, Marilyn Manson making the kids do Columbine, uh, or there was a case when I was, a uh, when I was, I think in high school, there was some action movie where robbers squeezed lighter fluid through the little window slot of a ticket booth and then set the ticket, um, taker on fire. It's a horrifying, horrifying, uh, scene. And there was a, a, a case where not long after that, some kids did that to a ticket taker. They, they, they squeezed lighter fluid on them and set them on fire, just as the people in this movie had. Well, that would seem to be a pretty straightforward case of copycat violence. It's horrifying. Obviously, it's horrifying. Terrible, inexcusable, despicable, and uh, incredibly sad. But again, I'm inclined to think that the people who did that were likely going to commit some violence anyway. And just as in Ghostbusters... This movie didn't so much make them do it as it did help them choose the form of the destructor. What is the end of the world going to look like? Well, I guess in this case, it's going to look like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. That's not because the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man invented the end of the world. It's just because that's what Dan Aykroyd happened to think of when he tried to make his mind go blank. Was it Dan Aykroyd or was it Bill Murray? Well, it doesn't matter. So I, I think that I think that art does sometimes influence bad behavior by giving it a specific form. But if you are, if a movie convinces you to go set an innocent man on fire, you're mentally ill. And as I said, as Joanna would have said many, many times, it's, as I can already hear her shouting in my ear, by every statistical study, by every meaningful metric, mentally ill people are far far less likely to commit acts of violence than they are to have acts of violence committed upon them. So I, I really just, I find it very hard to believe that art makes people do bad things. Even to tackle this case of the Bible, right? Because boy, that's a good objection. I'll read again. He says, you're an atheist. How much negative influence has the Bible had on human action? If those are just stories, they are art. Whew, that's a fucking bear trap, right? 
if I don't believe the things in the Bible happened, then by definition, I must believe they are art. And the Bible would seem pretty inarguably to have gotten, to have, to have given a lot of people a lot of bad ideas, to have inspired a lot of horrifying violence over many centuries. I guess my objections are threefold. One, and this is sort of a, a nitpicky, smallish thing, but I, I, I do think there's a little bit of a difference between mythology and fiction. I, I think that there is a difference between, you know, the picked clean skeleton of a whale at the bottom of the ocean and that same skeleton when it is living inside the whale, when the whale is still swimming and eating and breathing. I think that's maybe the difference between, you know, mythology when it is alive and mythology when it's dead and neglected, right? After, as, um, as Nietzsche said, you know, said God, after God is dead, not meaning that some person up in the sky had perished, but meaning that the, the idea is no longer publicly credible as he at least considered it to be, um, so I do think that, that, that mytho it's not quite fair to say that the Bible is either true events or fiction. I think that their you know, legend and allegory and mythology all have their place in the Bible, as well as some history. But uh, you know, I'm, I am not a biblical scholar, and I'm not really an expert on uh, any of that shit. So I'll set that aside for a minute and just consider two other angles on the question. Yes, people have in the name of the Bible committed many, many acts of violence for countless, countless years and months and hours of torture, of burning, of slaughter, of invasion, of oppression. The, 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 just the violence recounted in the Bible itself is breathtaking. When the brothers of Dinah circumcised every man <laughs> in the city and then and then murdered them all when they were uh, when they were in in agony from their their adult circumcision wounds and their father said what have you done you know the cities that are raised the people that are drowned the the children who get swallowed up by the earth because of the sins of the father just the violence in the bible itself is staggering and the violence that has that that book has inspired is likewise uh, really dizzying when one tries to, to think about it. But the same is true for just about every other religious text on earth. If you go, whatever part of the world you want to go to, whatever part of history you want to go to, you will find tribes of people inflicting horrifying violence on each other as often as not in the name of some religion. Now, I will go further than the the uh, you know late knots smug atheists on this point and say I don't just think it's not a question of Christianity versus other religions or the Bible versus other scriptures I I'm not even convinced this has anything to do with religion I I think that this is human nature and we find occasions and we find opportunities and we find excuses for it in one form or another but. You know, if you really wanted to show that the Bible specifically 
causes people to do bad things, that the stories in the Bible make people kill one another, then you would need to show that all of those other holy books have not done that. And, and I don't think you can, because I think it's human nature. Finally, and this is where I do sound like a little bit like a, like a, um, a snotty high school debate club member, but almost by definition, the people who have committed acts of violence because of the stories in the Bible, which, yes, gun to my head, I don't think really happened. Or, or rather, you know, I think what, whatever historical basis they have, whatever allegorical value they have, whatever mythological richness they might uh, possess, I, I don't think that in terms of the received word of God, in terms of the absolute truth, no, I don't think the Bible is, is, a, is a true story. So yes, I do think that it is in large part made up. Call it fiction if you have to. Almost by definition, the people who committed acts of violence because of the stories, the, as I will say, fictional stories in the Bible, those people didn't think they were fiction. They thought they were true and that's why they did it. If the Bible causes people to commit acts of violence, it's because people don't think it's fiction. It's because they think it is the literal truth. And hey, if uh, if Sonia Larson <laughs> were peddling her story as nonfiction, yeah, I would support, say, a, a an editor's correction. I would support maybe a little footnote that says, "Aha! Actually, this didn't really happen." Because I do think it is it's it's, it's worth separating fiction from nonfiction. And yeah, you could, there can be real danger. There can be real, real uh, bad things can happen when we confuse the two. But I, I don't want to pick on the Bible. I don't want to pick on believers. I don't want to pick on BH, who's uh, the best and writes the best emails. I'm really, uh, really enjoy them. One last question. And here I think I, I really have to give BH full credit because, you know, if my first question is, you know, was this wrong to do? And I have to say no. My second question is, do, does art make people do bad things? I, I really, I think no. I think no. I did think of the story of Carl Jasper's book, Man in the Modern Age. It was published in 1930, I think. It was the same year, I believe, as, or almost the same year as Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. Now, Jaspers was a uh, uh, largely a pacifist. He was a, a German existentialist philosopher, a psychiatrist first, and, and, and a philosopher. He uh, had, had very strong personal, political, and philosophical objections to the, the Nazi party and to the rise of the Third Reich. He, he was eventually selected by the French to head up denazification proceedings at the University of Heidelberg. Uh, he was also married to Gertrude Jaspers, who was Jewish and who uh, uh, thankfully was able to, to live out the war in, in um, uh, you know, in, in hiding in plain sight with Jaspers when he was, he was eventually... Uh, kicked out of the university by by the um, uh, Nazi education officials, in including his old friend Martin Heidegger. Jaspers published this book, Man in the Modern Age, which I haven't read in a while, but 
But as memory serves, it's, it's a relatively run-of-the-mill early 20th century existentialist book. It's, you know, 150, 200 pages about uh, the crisis of, of, of living in the modern age and making moral choices on one's own and having to bear the weight of that moral and having to bear the weight of, of those decisions for oneself. It's, uh, it's fine. It has some nice passages I underlined. Uh, it's not a life changer, but it's a fine book. It sold as academic books or want to not very many copies until one day Gertrude was walking by the bookstore and she noticed that stacked up in the window were 30 copies of Man in the Modern Age. And she said, huh. And before running home to tell Carl that his book had uh, suddenly uh, started selling out and how what good news this was and maybe they were going to be able to buy that boat after all, she she inquired within. And it turned out that the book was selling very well. The bookstore was moving lots of copies and all of those copies ended up being snapped up uh, before very long. But they were being snapped up by young men who had joined up with the fascist movement of the time. They were popular, the book was popular among young brown shirts and aspiring brown shirts. They had, or one of their intellectual or pseudo-intellectual leaders had, fastened on Jasper's book and decided that it in some way jibed with their philosophy, that this was going to be a sort of an intellectual foundation text for their movement. The Nazis were famous for adopting, cribbing, borrowing, distorting, stealing from German culture and uh, turning it to their own purposes. And that's what they did with Jaspers. Now, uh, he was appalled. Gertrude was certainly appalled. The uh, it, you know the Nazis didn't stay fond of him for long. He he lost his job and, and had to had to sort of keep his head down throughout most of the war. Uh, he 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 had a falling out with with Heidegger over Heidegger's enthusiastic support of Hitler. Heidegger's brilliant philosopher, but but uh, just a a non hyperbolic Nazi. <laughs> I mean, just or rather. It is not at all hyperbolic to say that Heidegger was a Nazi. He was literally a Nazi. And, uh, you know, Jaspers, as I said, became the, the head of the denazification proceedings after the war. He was, he was uh, the opposite of a Nazi. But Nazis liked his book, for a while at least. And they waved it around, and they encouraged one another to buy it, and maybe they read aloud from it at their meetings. Who knows? But, you know, this is a book of philosophy. It's not a book of art. It's not fiction. But I would suspect that no protesters, no communists or Jews or homosexuals were beaten up in the street. They weren't beating up homosexuals as much at that point. Those were still those before Ernst Strom was, uh, met his fate on the Night of the Long Knives. But there, I, my guess is that there were, there were no people, there were no extra people beat up in the streets who wouldn't have been beat up if not for Jasper's book. There were no concentration camps built that would not have been built if it were not for, uh, that, would, that would not have been built if, if Jasper's had not written his book. 
There were no murders that took place that would not have taken place if it were not for Jasper's book. Jaspers wrote a book, the Nazis adopted it, but they just went on doing what they were going to do anyway. And I am, I am inclined to think that is almost always the way in which art influences life. By the same token, I don't think art makes people better. All you have to do is examine the private lives of English professors to learn that, no, studying literature doesn't make you a better person. I do think that there is, you know, at the heart of really good writing, really truthful poetry, fiction, philosophy, say, I think that there is a kind of a moral clarity, a truth, and a moral clarity is now a, a phrase that has picked up all this this extra journalistic baggage. I, I don't I don't mean to invoke that, but I think that there is. Let me put it this way: I don't think studying literature makes you a better person. I think it's possible that it helps you understand being a better person. I just don't think it helps you do it any better. I think maybe it increases your capacity for for perceiving the suffering of others. I don't think it particularly gets you to uh, make sacrifices on their behalf. And I certainly don't think it makes you squeeze lighter fluid into the ticket booth. I don't think it makes you uh, uh, put on a, an armband and march in a fascist parade. I don't think it stops you from donating your kidney. I think that we have to protect art as an end in itself and also as an end in itself, we have to recognize that art stops short of really helping us. Certainly stops short of instructing us morally. The third question I have to ask, and the, the question in answer to which I have the least evidence, the least substantial argument, is if... Art makes people do bad things. Then, should we censor it accordingly? If, say, we could determine conclusively that Sonia Larson's shitty story influenced people to donate their kidneys less often. If, in fact, it did skis people out or, or cringe people out enough to make them not want to donate their kidneys altruistically. If her story was measurably having a negative effect on the behavior of its readers, then finally, Matthew, for Christ's sake, should we take it down? Should we ban it? Should we restrict it? And I, I have to say no. No. A book may influence people to do bad things. Maybe that's true. I, I tend to think it's not, but let's say it is. Even if it's true, no, I don't want to see it withdrawn. I don't want to see it banned. I don't want to see it restricted. I'm not even, I mean, I really, I will really just stick to fiction here because I don't want to take on the whole question of nonfiction or, or pseudo nonfiction. But yeah, if, if a work of art, let's put it that way, if a work of art influences people to do bad things, I 
I'm inclined to say too bad. Now, that is that is really just an expression of my prejudice, I think. I, th I think I am just, I think I'm an old dog who can't learn new tricks. And and my guess is that probably cosmically, BH is, is actually right. That there are cases in which we ought to uh, take down or withhold certain works of art in the event that they cause people to do bad things or, or influence people to do bad things. I just can't stomach it. And maybe that's because uh, I'm uh, I'm really the the wimp. I'm really the coward. But but that's that's where I've got to stick. That's the hill I've I've uh, decided to die on for Sonia Larson's stupid shitty story. <laughs> that is apparently that is uh, that's where I go down with the ship. I read the Poetic Edda recently. I, I may talk a little bit more about that on another episode, but there's a character in there named Gudrun. She's married a few times. Uh, she's married most memorably to Sigurd, who's one of the great tragic heroes of the Edda. And uh, Gudrun has a hard time of it. She suffers a lot of loss, a lot of deaths, a lot of humblings, a lot of torment. At one point, she tries to drown herself in sorrow, and the sea refuses to take her in and instead transfers her to another shore where the, where the king says, ah, a beautiful maiden washed up on my shore. Now I'll marry her. Gudrun has a rough ride. Uh, but she, she, she has some really wonderful speeches in which she expresses her mourning. She expresses her anger. She expresses the desire for vengeance. She expresses her sorrow. And in most cases, they don't change anything. There's even a whole, a whole poem, the purpose of which is just to show her commiserating with another guy who's at court with her. Neither of them especially want to be there. Both of them are pretty unhappy. And they just share their sad stories with each other. But there's this passage in particular that I really loved. She, she despairs of uh, Sigurd's death at the hands of the sons of Gyuki, who are, uh, if I remember correctly, her brothers, I believe. I believe her brothers murder her husband, and she later has them killed and then, and then takes revenge on <laughs> whoever kills them as well. But... Uh, I, I believe that it's her brothers, the sons of Gyuki, who kill Sigurd. And she just has this, this really touching little passage where she, where she says fairly straightforwardly what that makes her feel. This is, in Carolyn, this is in Carolyn Larrington's translation of the Poetic Edda. A few times she compares Sigurd to a leek, a wild onion. She starts... Here with the same image. So was my Sigurd beside the sons of Gyuki, as if a leek were grown up out of the grass, or a bright jewel threaded onto a string, a precious gem among the nobles. I seemed also, among the prince's warriors, to be higher than any of Odin's ladies. I am as little as a leaf 
among the bay willows. Now the prince is dead. I miss in his seat and in my bed my friend to talk to. It goes on, she she curses the sons of Gyuki and she uh, promises them a bad end in, uh, in answer to their treachery. But I find that I found that quite moving, just the simplicity of that. I miss in his seat and in my bed my friend to talk to. And I guess it's something about the acknowledgement of the missing companion. You know, the, the, the man who, who might listen to her words and do something as a result of them. The, the, the agent of real action in this, this, you know, old, violent, dark culture. The, the way that her words might have an immediate effect on people, that that way is gone. The prince is dead. But she has these words anyway for his loss. So was my Sigurd beside the sons of Gyuki as if a leek were grown up out of the grass or a bright jewel threaded onto a string. I am as little as a leaf among the bay willows. Now the prince is dead. This is not really for anyone's benefit. It's not for her benefit. It's not really a matter of persuasion. It's just this this small utterance, this small reflection of her pain, her despair. It it does nothing. In Auden's formula, it it makes nothing happen. But I'm glad it's there anyway. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. There's uh, some more some more mail I'm going to get to in the weeks to come. I also have some really good guests coming up. So you've got some things to look forward to. Thank you uh, for thank you thank you really to, to everybody also who who has recommended the show to somebody. It, it, it has been really spreading through word of mouth. I'm I'm really uh, grateful for that. Partly because I am uh, so characteristically uh, lazy. <laughs> hate doing social media promotion nonsense so uh, thank you i appreciate it and do go check out the conversation i had with alice on poetry says i think it, it should be the most recent episode it is live now unless she has thought better of it and pulled it uh <laughs> pulled it from the internet for the uh, for the for the greater good for the net positive in the world at large uh, you can reach me as always at sleeverkits at gmail.com. What one more uh, one more note? I am going to be traveling a little bit for Christmas, and should be I'm going to I'm going to try to be hitting these Wednesdays pr- pretty consistently, but it's possible that I will miss a week or so. But thank you as always for listening, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>